Our time is burdened under the cumulative weight of successive debunkings of our conceits. We live in the cosmic boondocks. Welcome to the Cosmic Boondocks, a weekly online radio show discussing science, reason, and humanistic values in India. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of the Cosmic Boondocks. We've been away for a while because we've been planning something. And starting this week, we're going to do something different. Every Saturday, a bunch of us get together and we have a hangout session on Google Plus and we call these the SENSE meetings and SENSE stands for Saturday Evening Nirmukta Hangout Sessions. We discuss various topics that are chosen beforehand and an edited version of our discussion will make its way into the podcast every week. In this episode of the podcast, we will play clips from the SENSE discussion on the 23rd of October. The topic for the show was a free thinker's view on the science and ethics of the environmentalism movement. This was a very small discussion group. The voices you will hear are Bobby Krishna, Geeta TG, Satish Chandra, Lalit Mohan Chawla, and myself, Ajita Kumar. was thinking we can discuss is um, the place where science and ethics meet. Where there'll probably be a lot of disagreement is when certain moral um, uh, issues come up, or, or rather when certain moral issues influence whatever science we are talking about. Okay, we're a much smaller group, but if this was, say, like 20, 30 people talking together, I'm sure like it's only when those moral issues come together, when, when we're skeptics, I mean, Usually the moral issues, that's when people tend to divide. Uh, and on the science, there really isn't much disagreement. Look at the condition now uh, with regard to pollution itself, uh, where, where develop, developing countries still are striving hard to, to keep the levels higher. Uh, another factor is about pesticide use. The developing countries still need to use a lot of pesticides compared to a developed country, which has got much better farming systems. There are a lot of areas where science is getting compromised because of the economics involved in, in this particular thing. When you look at the moral side of it, like, you know, you, you have animal activists who are, who are uh, you know, uh, kind of mixing environmental effects with, with uh, eating animal foods. So that, that, again, is a huge area of, of dispute. When you say, you know, well, first there are the science issues and then there are the ethical issues and, you know, for science issues, you said, for example, one of the examples you used was pesticides or, or fertilizers, be, you know, being needed a lot in the developing world in order to catch up. There is no science without a normative uh, element when we're talking about applied science, right? So you cannot just say, assume that, you know, just because the country needs development, and fertilizers and pesticides, which can be harmful in other ways, can lead to that development. That is something that is scientific. It might be something that is right along a certain moral value. 
but that has a certain moral value behind it a certain moral value in uh, you know the health of the ecosystem and in not you know seeing uh, dead zones being created in the oceans because of fertilizer runoffs and the discussion in my opinion doesn't happen when we don't talk about these different moral values involved what people often do is portray these ideas as purely scientific and empirical when there is a huge empirical element involved which is what we should be agreeing upon and trying to you know come up with or at least disagreeing to the point of bettering the evidence so that we can find true solutions but we often uh, end up not having these moral discussions but so i think yeah the society issue gets really uh, complex as we look into the economic part like most of the countries claim that they need they need time to switch over from from kind of pesticides that are being used right now like you know if you look at the endosulfan thing that's going on now in india they the 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 scientists as well as the farmers are saying like we need some time to switch over to other chemicals that are you know less harmful and, and so on so that's the balance but but a, a classic example of how chemis, chemicals have been incorporated in the system so well is, is the use of chlorine in in disinfection of water chlorine causes illness in a very low level but it's still considered as a harmful chemical i mean in, i mean it causes illness in a low level but uh, that number is still significant i mean it can affect uh, if you take the numbers it's pretty high but the thing is the the, the cost benefit is weighed in terms of how much chlorine protects uh, people from microorganisms versus how much it will kill as a chemical that is definitely <laughs> true there is a pseudo scientific element here which we are trying to extricate from the real environmental problems that we are facing so i definitely agree that what we are about is weighing the evidence and looking at how far can we go before something becomes detrimental or and not a benefit like if you look at any medicine that we take any drug that we use to uh, make ourselves uh, quote unquote better there's always or often a negative side and we weigh the consequences we should apply that to the environmentalist movement as well yeah what what would you do to 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 protect the environment i mean like what do you think are the most important thing say one uh, as a lay person uh, like in chennai there is an ngo called nidal nidal means shade so i am you know i won't say i'm very active but i'm part of the ngo and uh, what we do is every month actually every sunday we go around parks planting trees distributing saplings and one more project they do is remove the nails from the trees you know there are uh, trees on which nails are stuck and uh, they hang some advertisements and things so they go around removing the nails from the trees so generally they are uh, they look out for greening chennai like so i i like to be a part of that organization and contribute something by planting more trees that would be one thing second thing would be recycling like you know and not using much of plastic and educating my daughter about the environment i do think that don't require much effort from my side and not they are not much annoying i mean it's simple to just turn off the lights i mean save water and all so those things that don't require much efforts and are obviously not detrimental in any way you can just turn off your lights you uh, use electricity to minimum conserve water and all like right now i don't do much to contribute like to reduce any carbon emission or such things i leave my laptop on most of the time stuff like that but one thing i do is i try to use public transport like whenever possible i don't own a vehicle 
So it's a public transport or some other shared mode of transport I use. That's a great initiative when it comes to using, reducing the amount of energy that you would consume. How much of environmental burden does a person kind of generate by eating? eating out or getting any imported stuff and eating it like you know there's so much of discussions about food miles and isn't there a huge range for that uh, because a person for example in you know i could say sub-saharan africa or india someone like that would probably consume a lot less food energy than someone in the u.s or in western europe you know the interesting part about us is, is, is that like you know a, a probably a cauliflower that that comes from uh, Kodaknal to Nagarkoil spends probably more energy than uh, a cauliflower that comes from uh, Europe to Dubai <laughs> because because of the amount of transportation problems that we have in India. Oh, that's uh, infrastructure uh, problems. Yeah. See, I understand the scale is a lot smaller. Uh, but we're talking about individual poor people. Like, have you seen on the trains uh, people jumping, carrying vegetables into the cities? Uh, people yeah, yeah. Uh, driving on TVS 50s with bags of that day's produce. They, True. And they sell it in the local uh, shop. And that's literally the majority of uh, groceries in India, grocery uh, trade in India. So it's not like the big commodities market where they're shipping huge containers. I'm always big favor of you know, uh, the, the local eating habits, like, you know, eat local. Uh, you know, uh, probably 20 years ago, getting a cauliflower in, in Nagarkoil was, you know, something that, that was really, really uh, a rare thing. We, we wouldn't find anything, but you can get broccolis and cheese now. Like, you know, I, I think probably I started, I saw the corn uh, or watermelon first when I was 10 years old. So <laughs> I've never seen it before. Uh, so the you know the, the innate human tendency to try different things. this question is there any inherent value in nature so like say something is not really useful to you personally maybe on an aesthetic level yeah but other than that you know there's no like how they say in the world there's no practical use to you so does that thing have any inherent value in and of itself value in the sense like you know uh, should we care for nature like you know um, why why should we care for nature is that what you're asking well, that's a related question. That would come after this question, which is, is there actually any value in nature itself? So if you took yourself out of the equation. I think uh, we are uh, dispensable, like, you know, but nature, we shouldn't be even answering it. Like, you know, nature should be there. Like, you know. um, well, what I'm trying to say is, uh, it's so arrogant on our part to even ask, like, you know, why should we care for nature or uh, what is the purpose, like, what is, uh, why should we care for our environment, like, uh, we are the uh, most uh, negligible part of it, like, you know, it should be there always. Okay, so you think Do that uh, there is, there is definitely inherent value in nature yeah. itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
let's see if we get different degrees. Okay. <laughs> uh, anybody willing to go that far, uh, further than that, or go the other way? Satisha, uh, I don't think nature by itself has any inherent value. Like if you leave out humans out of the picture, because only when we are there, we need nature to survive. That's one one level. And as I was saying, the aesthetic, that's another level. So I would say like, doesn't have an inherent value of itself unless we factor in humans. Extremely opposite view, I think. I was just wondering, like, you know, what happens if the, the pandas in China die off completely? Does it really make anything different in the world? Yeah, that's a good question. Why do we have to conserve tigers? Yeah, what if tigers go extinct? Like, why do we have to you know, make full that effort? Yeah, the olden days, I mean, not, not olden days, like, you know, when it was real forest, 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 it was very important to have carnivorous animals hunting the, the, the herbivores to, to make sure that, you know, the balance existed. But like these days, they have to be protected just because we want to see them. We, we want to protect them because our children need to see them. I think that's that's the only reason why people are doing it. Or is it because you know, of some other reason? That's probably how the question will be placed. Yeah, I can think of one reason. We don't fully understand nature, like how the various cycles work, how affecting one thing affects another thing. So it probably makes sense to try to maintain things as they were without disturbing too much. Protecting panda in China is not easy. The whole world talks about it. The amount of energy resources that we spent are significantly higher. I mean, I think we could dispute that, you know, do you deserve to spend so much of energy on, on protecting uh, pandas in China? Uh, is, it worth, is it worth spending all the money that the WWO spends on, on uh, education of people, uh, you know, letting people know. You, could, you can see these posters all around, you know, how much of these posters get printed all in the world. I don't agree with that. I'm not taking a stand here, Geeta. I'm just giving mm. a view which is, mm. which is different. And I've seen mm. paper printouts of, you know, protect panda, bamboo shoots are cut down for, mm -hmm. for making, making that paper. Uh, what if all the pandas in China go extinct? Let's just talk about tigers. What if all the tigers in India go extinct? There are a few complications in real life. Uh, there are actually people who might be happy. Like, for example, the people who live there, right? Let's say you're one of those people. How do you feel about all tigers going extinct? Inherently, is there value in the tiger? And a third question is, say you are somebody who doesn't really have any perspective either way. Those people are going to be attacked. And there's a bunch of tigers there that would have to go if they were to not be attacked. So now what would your feelings be? Say there's no other alternative. You cannot move those people anywhere else. There's no land. Okay, so that's a real model situation. And this is the, the end of the spectrum as far as I'm concerned. What if you can actually make it easier, like leave a gate open or something, uh, for the tigers to eat those people so that they won't the tigers won't go extinct as in if you don't do that the tigers are going to go extinct so the tigers have to eat those people Gita, so it would be yeah. interesting to get your perspective here now you guys made me think you know <laughs> when adita said what if you have to leave a gate open for the tiger to <laughs> eat some people Look at the Nilgiri districts and, yeah. and why not yeah, in Kerala, you, you mm -hmm. see a lot of elephants coming in. And I was yeah, watching yeah. a TV program yesterday, elephants mm -hmm. were on a rampage, you know, killing people. Yeah. And I've, I've worked in Nilgiri, so I mm -hmm. know how bad the elephant attacks are. 
visited a few of uh, people encroaching those elephant corridors are like the elephants really come out to the fields and attack the people in that case everything is a corridor for elephants i mean whatever mm. we see in in kerala now or tamil nadu most of these wild areas were uh, you know inhabited by these animals so we are all encroachers mm. in in one way or the other so mm. uh, we cannot just say that people are closest to the forest are the encroachers we are all encroachers mm. you know like most of the cultivable land was once forest I mean, like if you if you look at a lot of areas in Tamil Nadu now, wild boars are a big problem, especially the cassava fields, tapioca, and you know all these kind of stuff. They just come and take the whole place up. You know the reason why it's increased recently, right? It's because uh, they became stricter on hunting. Predators need much larger territories, and obviously we don't have much of uh, that. So the natural predators of the wild boar, which is most probably leopards. Now it's here. mostly human beings. <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. that's what i'm saying they've actually started cracking down harder now the forest department at least around here i know i remember a time when you could actually get wild boar meat but now it's completely like you cannot find like people are very scared to do anything even set a trap uh, and so they just have to let the animal come and uh, if they have enough number of people they make some noise geeta this brings up a different point in some cases you have to actually be what would traditionally be considered cruel that is kill and i'm not i don't mean for sport uh, but mm. sometimes people do uh, just in order to maintain the population so for example mm. in the us there's certain seasons where deer hunting is legal and they actually mm. claim that if they didn't have that season there'd be too many deer ajita you don't have to go that far look at look at the cattle population in india like mm-hmm. uh, i've not see, come across any research which clearly says how much of resources are wasted on on maintaining these cattle which are very low in productivity uh, they just eat plastic most of the time you know <laughs> produce a lot of gas and <laughs> i would just go for eating beef to to get protect them man <laughs> in india if you look at it i think we need to spend more resources on public transport and so that people like satish who are willing to use public transport can and and go and protect them i mean so if we have uh, cycling lanes i think it would be wonderful you know earlier we talked about local farming same way there were roadside avenues in most cities but now they're slowly disappearing and that that's a trend that we see now like a farmers market was like 100 meters away from my home uh and it was very active till about uh 20 15 20 years ago and and now it's completely gone there is actually a movement now of a few people in a few cities in the world who are trying to uh, make their cities better so for example there is a movement guerrilla gardening they call it uh, a bunch of people take up a piece of land within the city and then they beautify it or they plant vegetables or whatever and they don't ask anyone's permission so if the city if the land is belongs to somebody else or it belongs to the city the town itself they'll just go take it up and they'll they'll do it and they call it guerrilla gardening and uh, there are groups in new york city for example that collect fruit from the city trees which usually goes waste because nobody there in the city plucks the fruit and that that comes up to a few tons few hundred tons i think so there are these types of uh, groups coming up all over the place i know that in india although th- we lost a lot of the old traditions that were designed for you know healthier living with the environment but there are certain movements uh, that are positive for example certain parts of the city are actually now being cordoned off to traffic so they're becoming walkways and that's a good sign just the other day a few days ago i watched 
a show um, about a town in Nepal where they've banned vehicles entering the main part of the town. Tourism is one of their major sources of income. It's high up on the Himalayas. There was a lot of opposition in the beginning, but the tourists actually started flocking there. And soon all the opposition evaporated, and now it's become one of those cool places where you walk around and you know, there's no vehicles allowed. So there could be a positive spin on this. If we can come up with really good ways of having better public transportation, not the grimy old subways, but brighter, well-lit, fast transportation. And I think, uh, yeah, cities like Amsterdam, they have everything on the street. You see the trams going, you see the bus, cycles, cars, and the number of cars are significantly lower. Those are classic uh, you know, great examples that we can use to build our cities. But I think that, again, requires a lot of knowledge among our policymakers. It demands people to, to spend time uh, taking good advices from the right people rather than, rather than fighting for things which are really silly. Again, all these walkways and uh, things could happen only in uh, posh areas. Like, you know, I remember in Coimbatore Race Coast, there's a wonderful walkway, like, you know, it, it was maintained very well with plants on either side and people used to walk. It can happen only in race course area of Coimbatore, not in you know some other area of Coimbatore, which is crowded and. Even in Dubai, that's the same. Like all the posh areas, you know, we have mm. a lot of uh, cycling tracks, and, mm. and in a lot of places where children can spend time, mm. uh, spend their energy. <laughs> Whereas in, in in other places where poor poor guys stay, it's yeah. all cramped up. Hardly yeah. even you know space to walk. I mean, it's just mm. building to car, nowhere else. So, in Chennai, uh, it would be like, you know, areas like Adyar, Mailapur, where there will be walkways and uh, well-lit places. Like, you yeah. take areas like Egmore or Tandyar, but like, you know, you won't have any place to walk. This is something that's very closely related to what this conversation is about. How much technology is a good thing? Is technology inherently a good thing? So we started off with, is nature inherently a good thing? Now we're asking, is technology inherently a good thing? And where is the line? There is one group, they're called the primitivists, or they call the environmental prim primitivists. Basically, what they argue is that all our technology, modern civilization, is antithetical to a peaceful uh, and happy life on the planet. And then there's the other extreme that right now doesn't care about the environment. Uh, like, for example, there are groups right now in the U.S. that lobby to basically oppose any legislation that comes before Congress that has to do with something that's beneficial for the environment. This group is very closely allied to the global warming denial movement, and mm. it has been linked to other similar movements in the past. For example, people who deny that you know, extinction is proceeding at the accelerated pace that it is. So the middle ground is, it's not science and technology itself that's bad, but it is the way that science and technology has been used. So it's a very obviously simple argument to us. But where is this line and what helps determine this line? So this is what I'd like to ask you. It's like giving a high-powered car to a person in India and telling him to drive in a road that's equipped 30 kilometer per hour at 120 kilometer per hour. It just kills people sometimes. That's how science works sometimes for people who are not very informed. Environmental decisions need much more discussion, much more open forums, and I think every country, every region should take initiative. Global warming deniers also provide evidence. I think one of the major stances they take is that situation has been improving and will continue to improve. And, 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 and I'm not sure, like, you know, uh, whether, whether, again, that improvement is sustainable. Can we continue with these improvements with the current scenario? 
you can talk about certain things we've reduced because of our automobile exhaust laws and uh, certain other types of laws like laws trying to you know make products more energy efficient switching yeah. to fluorescent lighting and things like that that have maybe made a small difference but i'd like to see the evidence that it's getting better people who are on the fringes of a scientific idea always have evidence the problem is that they are on such a small ledge and the overwhelming evidence and as uh, michael shermer would say it's the preponderance of the evidence it's all the evidence that has added up you cannot falsify global warming now by bringing up a single piece of evidence when there are all these other pieces of evidence that you have to then explain that are on the other side of the argument where the majority of uh, scientists stand today climate scientists Cosmic Boondocks is produced by Ajita Kamal for Nirmukta Radio. Please visit our website at nirmukta.com, N-I-R-M-U-K-T-A.com. Join our online community of freethinkers in building a culture of rational inquiry and critical thinking in India. For details or to send us comments and suggestions, please use the Contact Us page on the website or send us an email at info at nirmukta.com. And that's all the time we have for this week. I'm going to end the show with a clip from the Big Picture Science Podcast. Hello, Anthropocene. I'm Seth Jostak. And I'm Molly Bentley. Anthropocene. Well, that's a geologic term coined by scientists that may come to describe the era we're entering now, the age of man. Welcome to Big Picture Science, Anthropocene and Herd. And what we're hearing is a new epic as a measure of the human impact on the planet, the International Commission on Stratigraphy, which is the group that is in charge of designating geologic time periods, is debating whether we've entered a new era of geologic time. I guess you could say it's an epic debate. Well, William Steffen is executive director of the Climate Change Institute at the Australian National University. Will, now, geologists like to look at history in terms of eras and epics and so forth, the Jurassic era is is one that comes to mind. What defines an epic and why is this a useful way of talking about Earth's history? Well, well, Earth history is divided into periods of various times, as you say, uh, and that's been done uh, as a useful tool for people who do research in the area. It's been very helpful to geologists to understand the processes that occur over long time frames in Earth's environment and how they change. So, so are you one of the scientists who wants to rename our epic the Anthropocene? Yes, I was involved in uh, developing the concept uh, from the beginning. It was first uh, used by Paul Crutzen in the year 2000. Paul's an eminent atmospheric chemist. But we've developed the concept quite a bit since then. And I think, as I said, it's a useful concept to focus people's attention on the fact that in many senses... Uh, humans and our activities are now the major influence on the global environment. Well, let's look at that a bit more. But first, if we may, what what's defined the Holocene? This is the epoch that we're currently in, this this warm period that we're in. What's defined this epoch? Well, the Holocene is, is the latest in a series of warm periods. During the late Quaternary uh, period, the Earth has oscillated between ice ages and warm periods. And uh, the latest one, which is an unusually long one, is called the Holocene. The one before it was actually called the Eemian. So this is a a natural feature of of this time in Earth history, is that the Earth orbits around the Sun. 
given the shape of its orbit, it oscillates between ice ages and warm periods. This is simply the latest one. Okay, so now we may move from the Holocene into the Anthropocene. And what have we been doing on this planet that warrants another epoch? Yes, we, we've been doing a lot. The obvious one that a lot of people think about is the climate, and, and the climate is shifting rapidly to a much warmer state. But we've changed gas concentrations in the atmosphere. Carbon dioxide is one a lot of people know about, methane, nitrous oxide. We've depleted ozone in the stratosphere. We've dammed most of the major rivers around the world and impeded their flow. We've converted something like 30% of the ice-free land to um, heavily used croplands. We've changed the marine biota through intensive fishing in many ways. Now, the critical point for geologists is, can we see this in the geological record? And that's a debate that's being had now. Because for other eras and so forth, that is what defines, or at least one of the things that defines that epoch is all the creatures, the plants and the animals and so forth that you actually see in the fossil record, for example. That's right. That's a very good point. And and in fact, several of the large geological eras are separated by mass extinction events. We can think of the one that knocked out the dinosaurs about 65 million years ago. But there's growing evidence that we're facing a mass extinction event now. Extinction rates are already perhaps 100 times higher than background rates, and they continue to increase. So uh, many experts are saying we're possibly at the beginning of the sixth great extinction event in Earth history. And if this is so, future geologists would undoubtedly uh, see this this boundary in, in the geological record. So it sounds like that boundary is, is defined not only by the chemical changes on a planet in the atmosphere and the warming of the planet, the acidification of the oceans and so forth, but the change in biodiversity, in other words, the loss of biodiversity. That's right. And the interesting point I think now is as we're grappling with the formalization of the term of the Anthropocene, we're in a unique position because for all the other geological periods, geologists and other scientists have looked back to see evidence of something that's already happened. And now we're looking at something that's unfolding uh, in our own lifetimes. And I think that makes it a trickier uh, scientific question to really determine if we're in the Anthropocene and when indeed did it start. Well, is it actually useful to use this term, Anthropocene, or is it a rebuke in some ways to the public and and a wake-up call? Are you doing it really for symbolic reasons? No, I I think in in terms of science, it does have some practical reasons, because the original term, when Paul Crutzen used it, was an almost uh, spontaneous reaction to the fact that, that other scientists in this particular meeting that he was at were talking about the Holocene as if we were still in it. And he forcefully made the point as a scientist that, well, can we really say we're still in the Holocene? Because a lot of aspects of that environment that have been stable for ten or 12,000 years are now quite different. So I think that the original use of the term was definitely within the scientific community to help us understand a lot of the, the global scale changes which were actually occurring. Uh, you raise an interesting point about how, if this becomes formalized, how the public will react to it. And that's, that in itself is an interesting question. Do you want to take a stab at the answer to that? I, I think one of the terms you used, I, I hope, would be a good word, and that's it is a wake-up call that we do have a finite planet, that we have benefited enormously by the fact that we've had a stable interglacial warm period for quite a while now, for 10 or 12,000 years. And in fact, without human interference, this would go on for another 10 or 20,000 years, given the more circular shape of the Earth's orbit. So I think what this is saying is we as a species now have a large amount of influence on where the planetary environment's going. So this is a wake-up call to say that the environmental issues we're facing, like climate change, like biodiversity loss and so on, are not marginal environmental issues. They're central to the future direction of, of modern society.